Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me that I was bipolar. I was released with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for about a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using music for therapy and as a way to escape. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests. This is Screen Therapy. Every band has to travel. And yes, sometimes it's by plane. But few have had the type of experience that Buzz Osborne did. Buzz is the singer-guitarist of the legendary Melvins. Formed way back in 1983, Melvins are known as one of the original sludge metal bands, and they have roots in the Pacific Northwest punk scene. A few years ago, Buzz and his Melvins bandmates had a nightmare trip when they traveled overseas for a couple of quick tours. The trip involved two major earthquakes and a harrowing flight home. As a result, Buzz returned with a case of flight anxiety, otherwise known as an extreme fear of flying. That added to his already existing anxiety from when he was younger, which put him into an even tougher slog. Since that ill-fated trip, Buzz uses techniques to improve his mental health. One of them is psychological acupressure, an alternative treatment for overcoming traumatic events and emotional distress. Luckily, Buzz continues to be the jovial and quick-witted guy he always was, and he still wails like a demon and plays a guitar like it's a punching bag. Maybe someday his nightmare trip will be just a distant memory. For now, it's a story of survival. My name's Buzz. I play in a band called The Melvins. I also have played in a band called Phantomas. I also do solo acoustic stuff. And I've been a working musician, making my living playing music since about 1988 as my only source of income. And I have, you know, suffered from some anxiety issues during that amount of time. And I have a pretty serious fear of flying. I would call it post-traumatic stress syndrome from being in two big earthquakes, the last one being in Tokyo, the big uh, tsunami earthquake there, and then a horrendous flight home the next day through the worst turbulence I've ever been in. So I've had to deal with all that for the last five or six years, probably. When do you remember anxiety becoming a part of your life? You know, honestly, I was thinking about this the other day. This is strange. And I'm 56 years old. So when I was a kid, when I was a kindergarten that's like five years old. I remember being afraid of nuclear war. That was one of the first things I remember being afraid of. And um, thinking that I would just be blown up, blown to bits. And I would even envision my body just being vaporized as like a five-year-old kid. I don't know if people can really, there's nothing that threatens us that way. Not on that level. The way that that kind of threatened the whole, pretty much a free world. Did that worrying that you had, natural disasters and flying and those things, carry through your life then from childhood? I think it was always there. But, you know, it's been my experience that the people that I've worked with, better part of 40 years of playing, 
and the artists that have been around, the ones that were the best always have some kind of issue mentally. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why, but the ones that were the best, they put so much time into being this good that they have let other areas of their life suffer. There's actually a book about that by K. Redfield Jameson. All oh, about wow. How the link between artists and mental illness. So, yeah, you're right on target with that. I would guess. I've always thought that. You know, I realized that really quickly that the people that had the best antennas up creatively had something wrong with them. Something was messed up. They couldn't do the rest of their lives. They had alcohol or drug issues or they had, you know, maybe they were just not very nice people. You put a bass guitar in their hand or, you know, put them behind the drums or singing and they couldn't be beat. I'm sure it's the same with athletes. Were you quite withdrawn when you were growing up? Yeah, I grew up in a, I was born in a town near Mount Rainier called Morton, Washington. That was a town of about 900 people. And so there was nothing there. I spent a lot of time doing zero until I was about 11. I lived there. And did a lot of outdoor activities, whether they be fishing, gunplay, one form or another, uh, lots of adventurous stuff, you know, pseudo camping, spent a lot of time in the woods. My family was not really well off. And so from the time I was, or at least I can remember until probably about sixth grade, we never had a television set. We would listen to some records at home, but. I didn't watch TV until I was almost a teenager. I didn't really watch TV after I left my parents' house. Still don't watch TV. I haven't watched TV since the early 80s. You know, not really. I don't know what's on it. I have no idea. <laughs> Being around redneck culture, did that affect your mental health at all? Well, what happened to me was uh, I moved from Morton where I had some friends as a kid to a town, Montesano, where I didn't have any friends. And I moved into a situation where that was a little bit bigger of a town, but I was going to school with kids whose parents had went to school together. So as a seventh grader, I was the Auslander, definitely. And um, until ninth or 10th grade, when I ran into the guys that would be the Melvins and mostly the drummer, Mike Dillard, I didn't have anybody, nothing. Oldest kid in my family, me and my brother didn't really hang out much. I spent a lot of time on my own, a lot of time in deep self-introspection, which wasn't always good. And I lost myself in things like books, mostly books, adventure books from an early age. That was one of my one of my favorite things. As far as being around rednecks, I don't know that I would have done, I might have done better somewhere else, but I started traveling with music. In the mid-80s is when I realized that it wasn't me that was insignificant. It was where I lived was insignificant compared to the whole world. And once I made that revelation, then things got a lot better for me. Do you remember the first time you picked up a guitar and how that felt? I picked up a guitar relatively late, probably not until I was 16 or 17. And then within a few years of just learning to play, I was playing in the Melvins pretty quickly. Yeah. Inside of four years playing not at all to playing gigs. Wow. What, was it therapeutic for you? Oh, yeah. I thought it was great. I mean, I always really loved rock music. Rock music itself was an escape. There was no record stores where I lived. For me, it all came out of magazines that I would find one at the grocery store. They had places you could order records. So I would do stuff like have odd jobs. So my family 
were not well off at all. And I would do odd jobs and then get enough money to give my mom a check when I was like 12, two records. And it costs, you know, $9 or $10. And so that's what I would do. I always worked. I've been working since I was about 12 or 13. I know it's a sensitive subject for you, but can you take me back to the Japan trip and how you were feeling about that at the time? Um, it's not It's not too sensitive. I'm fine talking about it. I actually honestly think that talking about stuff like this actually releases its power. And I would imagine, without being certainly no expert, that that is the point of therapy. It's been my experience with that sort of thing that if you put it all out there, let's say that you have a big problem mentally or something that's really tough for you to get through if i write it out on a piece of paper and look at it then it doesn't look like it's that big of a deal but if i leave it in my head with all those things spinning it seems like it's insurmountable if i put it on a piece of paper and look at it and read it it doesn't seem insurmountable i don't know why that works but it certainly works for me i would imagine that's the root of therapy pretty much shared pain so japan i mean you went over there for melvin's tour this we moved to california in the mid 80s and we'd been through big earthquakes there huge ones i lived in los angeles in 94 when that huge one hit there that was at 5 a.m i'd just been married about two weeks when that hit then we were traveling about six seven years ago however long ago it was and we were in christchurch new zealand on a tour and we were at the airport and a gigantic earthquake hit there I think one had hit about six months before that. But that earthquake destroyed the club that we'd played in the night before, collapsed, and destroyed the hotel that we had just checked out of. Wow. And we were at the airport. Okay, so then getting out of there was a nightmare, total nightmare. We had all of our – we hadn't checked our bags yet, so fortunately we had that stuff. But just getting out of New Zealand back to the mainland where Auckland was was just a – it was a nightmare. Then we did all that. Then we went on tour in Australia, and we did two weeks of touring there. And then from there, we flew to Japan, and we played two shows in Japan, and then we were on stage doing our sound check in Tokyo when that earthquake hit. So it's like two weeks apart, two gigantic earthquakes on two different parts of the globe, right? That's unreal. Is it, what are the odds? We've been in gigantic earthquakes in three different continents. <laughs> what are the odds? I have no idea. That should be some kind of club. Anyway, obviously the show was canceled and we're there and it becomes obvious and there's massive aftershocks. But in Tokyo, they don't build things out of scotch tape and string, generally speaking. So the power didn't even go out where we were, but it was big earthquakes and we could tell. We were with the promoter, and we're outside in Shibuya, which is a big TVs everywhere outside. It's like Times Square, kind of. And they're having all this news stuff, but it's all in Japanese, so he's telling us what it says. And he's like, oh, big wave, big wave. And we're like, what? You know, it's like a fucking tsunami north, up north, you know. And then we started realizing that thousands of people were dead, and this is a big deal. This is really big. As it turned out, I think at least 14,000 people died in that, I believe. I might be wrong about that exact number, but I know it's thousands and most of them were swept out to sea or whatever, buried. The next day we had a trip to the airport, which is usually about an hour and a half. The roads were closed and so many overpasses and bridges were closed that it took us six hours to get to the airport. Okay. So we 
you're on your way to the airport. It's bumper to bumper traffic. You're on some overpass and a big gigantic aftershock hits. And you're, you know, a hundred feet up on some overpass or you're on a bridge. And it just happened over and over and over the whole time we were going up there. So I'm just like, okay, just get me out of here. You know, <laughs> just, yeah. we get to the airport and the airport is a zoo. It's a zoo. I mean, it's like, the only thing I can remind me of is like escaping Saigon in 1975. Everybody's running around wild. It's just anarchy. And the promoter is still with us. He's taking us to the airport and we go, what's going on here? And he's like, these are all people are from the North who don't know what they're going to do. Don't know where their families are. They don't know how they're going to get home. It's just this horrible reality. The outcome of something on that grand scale you see stuff like that and you see their faces and you put a face to this tragedy and you're looking at it and it just, you have to have nerves of steel to not have that bother you. It certainly bothered me, certainly made an impression and the aftershocks continue. And so I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I just wish that this thing would be over and that I was on a plane. Once I get off the ground, I'll be fine and be fine. You know, I'm not freaking out outwardly or having some, you know, not flipping out or anything, but I'm, certainly internally having it there's a, certainly a war going on internally so we get through we get to this plane and everybody that's on the plane has been through everything we have and so we get on the plane and we take off and everybody's talking about where they were what was happening what they saw you know the whole way and i'm just not really talking i'm just kind of sitting there and i'm listening to this going on around me so we take off and flight from japan to LA is about nine hours, I think. It's it's at night now, and so we're flying. And then, about three hours into the flight, we hit. And I've been on hundreds of flights, hundreds of flights. I've been into all kinds of terrible turbulence, but we hit the worst, by far the worst turbulence I've ever been in, and it goes on for hours, hours of it. Okay, to the point where if you hadn't had your seatbelt buckled, you'd hit the ceiling. And over and over and over and over, it does this, just hammering, hammering, hammering. And not just a little bit of turbulence, but I mean full on the worst. Like you're, hit, like you're slamming into an 18-wheeler. People are freaking out. At some point during that, I don't remember anything at all. And so what I've done is I wrote out everything I could remember for that whole experience. And I have vivid memories of everything up until about halfway through the turbulence. I can't remember anything. I can't remember the turbulence stopping. I can't remember us landing at the airport. I don't remember going through customs. I don't remember how I got home. I don't remember telling my wife any of this stuff. Nothing. Blacked it out? I don't know. It's just, yeah. it's just, I can remember up to a certain point and that's it. I don't remember how, obviously I was, you know, made it through it. I just don't have those memories. Do you have anxiety around earthquakes and things like that now or well i always did have anxiety around earthquakes i don't know who wouldn't but uh, <laughs> it manifested itself in a massive fear of flying now i have this theory that had it just been the flying the turbulence it wouldn't have bothered me had it just been the earthquakes it wouldn't have happened yeah or one of the earthquakes but the combination of all of them that was it i also think that there's only so much of that kind of stuff that you can take and depending on what you've went through in your life, you get to a certain point, it's like stretching a rubber band and the rubber band doesn't have any more elasticity in it. And it just breaks. 
and that's it. Now, people could call it a nervous breakdown or whatever, but at some point you have to start realizing that something on your end has to be done to ground yourself from this tragedy. And so it manifested itself in me in anxiety attacks, certainly, or, you know, anxiety. Um, some people don't like the word attacks. I don't, it doesn't bother me because that's what it feels like. And panic attacks, I guess, uh, does feel that way to me. And massively in fear of flying. That's what happened. Within a few weeks, I immediately got back on a plane. And it was torturous. And the panic attacks, you would never know I was having one. It's like I'm not outwardly hyperventilating or doing anything. But it's an internal struggle. Definitely, you'd never know what was going on. Never. What I did was, for the next couple years, is I did not stop flying. But it was always torturous. What I started doing was I would get on airplanes and I do first. I did a lot of research about airplanes. I did a massive ton of reading because I'm very logically minded. If it doesn't make logical sense to me, and that was one of the big problems I had was the anxiety didn't seem logical to me because I knew that the chances of me having an accident in the airplane were slim to none. And then I remember I found this the chance of crashing in an airplane. You could basically fly every single day in a commercial jet for 20,000 years before the odds would be that you would crash. <laughs> every day. That's quite so, the odds. That's right. So you're really, nothing's going to happen. And then I saw like there's 400 eastbound transatlantic flights a day from America and just as many coming back every single day and planes don't crash into the ocean. I did all kinds of research like that. How many flights go to Australia every day? How many flights go? I would look into all this and look at it. Then I would do this thing when I'd get on an airplane. I would look for the oldest stewardess and hopefully one that was in her 60s, somewhere like that, you know, maybe nearing retirement. And I would ask her when I got a chance, I would ask him questions like, how long have you been a stewardess? How many flights have you been on? And I would have stewardesses that would tell me, oh, 50,000? I go, how is that possible? One of them told me that she was on a thing where they would fly, I can't remember, somewhere on the East Coast, one-hour flight back and forth, back and forth, all day long. And she did that for years, decades, and never crashed. And I go, so you've seen everything that can happen on a plane? Yes. Every kind of scenario that could happen? Yeah, I've seen it all. And I go, and you're not? She goes, I'm absolutely not worried. <laughs> so... <laughs> That kind of stuff helped me. I talked to airline pilots, pilots, guys who flew commercial jets, and asked them every kind of question I could ask them. And what I found was these weren't people that didn't want to talk about this stuff. They want to talk about it. They're fascinated by it. It's their life. I would tell them about, you know, I want to ask you some questions about what's going on when you're flying. And I got all this information about why they're doing what they're doing. And then ask them about turbulence. Are you worried about And they're like, no pilot I ever talked to or stewardess was ever concerned about turbulence. The reason that we're concerned about turbulence is because it causes flight sickness, air sickness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and not want the passengers throwing up and then making the passengers' lives and the other passengers around them, they don't want to make their life uncomfortable on the plane. And so the pilot is looking and talking ahead to other pilots about where the smoother air is. That's why he's going up and down. They're looking for smoother air. That's it. They're absolutely not concerned whatsoever about the plane crashing as a result of turbulence. And so I did a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it sounds to me like you were doing distress tolerance. That's something that they teach in a lot of the 
behavioral therapy courses is this distress tolerance. Yeah. Yeah. The hardest thing for me was that it wasn't logical to me, the non-logical nature of it. And I had to get to this point where I just feel that this is past logic. It doesn't make sense. But it makes perfect sense in that it's anxiety. But I couldn't face a thing like that that didn't make sense to me because there was so few odds of you crashing would bother me as much as it did. And how are you now with flying? I still don't like it, but it's way better. I've spent a lot of time on it, a whole lot of time. What's weirded me out the most is the memory thing. I still don't know exactly what happened there. I can't, I can't explain it. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it just sounds like there is so much to take with all the rest of the stuff that went on with that trip. Your mind's got to shut down at some point. It's a survival technique. It, it is. I just, I just remember thinking, if I wasn't so sane, this wouldn't bother me. All this craziness wouldn't bother me. If I was insane, it wouldn't bother me. And then it was almost like I felt this thing in my head just go, click. Done. Don't remember a thing. Wish that would have turned off the anxiety to come, but that didn't happen. Yeah. Tell me about this psychological acupressure. I guess it's commonly referred to as tapping. Oh, yeah. I found that because, you know, in my, in my research online, I found this look into, like, you know, stress relieving techniques for flying. You know, I was looking for all kinds of things like that. I've spent... I, you know, I would be on tour and let's say I knew that, you know, I would have a flight coming up in a few months that would happen. I'd start thinking about what to do on the plane. You know, I'm pretty much open to anything, reading about it or trying it. And uh, I found some things online that were just that. Basically, what you do is affirmative affirmations in your brain about flying. And there's certain points on your head and on your chest that you tap or you just hold pressure on. And then follow that up with tapping. I think it works. I think it helps me a lot. It's part breathing and part acupressure. But at the time, I didn't know it was acupressure. Then I've had acupuncturists tell me, I've shown them this whole thing. Those are all acupressure points. Those are exactly where I would stick a needle for what you're talking about. How does it help? Well, it's very subtle. What it does, I think, is it takes you out of the moment that you're in. And I do it not only before I'm flying, but I also do it on the plane. There's little ones you can do that are on the plane. And then I'll even do it sometimes when I'm driving. I'll do it before shows. But I think it takes you out of the, like, let's say you're just hitting on the side of your temples. Boom, 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 boom. One after the other, one finger after the other. It's like it's knocking on two sides. To me, it knocks my brain out of the feedback loop that it's in, disconnecting it, sort of. It's like, a, uh, you know how like if your dog is barking its head off and you tap it on the back, it kind of surprises it out of that anger that it's in? I'm certainly no expert, but I know our brains are two hemispheres. So if you're going back and forth between them, it's kind of like hitting a reset button. It's more subtle than that. You go through this process, and in a matter of two or three minutes or four minutes, if you're really present in what's going on, you will be more calm than you were when you started. How has your anxiety changed as you've gotten older? <sighs> well, it got worse when that kind of stuff happened. Yeah. I still have some anxiety about flying. I don't like it, but I'm, it's not going to stop me from doing it. Do you consider that as a phobia? I think it's post-traumatic stress. Any phobia would be, if it was brought on by something else, it would be post-traumatic stress, I would guess. But I always felt like a phobia was more like something you manifested yourself without having an outside force kicking into high gear. 
are you experiencing like flashbacks or disassociative behavior with flying and the fear of flying? It's not logic based. So I wish I could say, you know, my fear is a flashback from something that happened to me, but it doesn't feel that way. Just out of nowhere, it's almost like it's an overwhelming feeling of doom. You know, because if I run through my Rolodex in my head, none of that makes any logical sense. There's nothing to fear getting on an airplane. Nothing. Nothing. There's absolutely nothing. But this is beyond that. It's something else. So I don't know. Good for you for doing the work on it, too. I mean, that sounds like a lot of research. I'm kind of that way about stuff. It's like teach myself how to play golf, teach myself to play guitar, you know. Let's just switch gears for a sec, Buzz. I've always considered the Melvins a punk band. Does that wash with you? Sure, absolutely. Obviously, you've done so much stuff. Many, many, many releases since then, but the essence of punk is what got you going. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, that mentality, I like about as many bands of any stripe as I ever did. Uh, I certainly don't like every punk band, whatever that is, or any band or any genre. But uh, I always felt that our heart was there in that stuff. I knew that. Maybe some other people have a problem with that, but I you know, have a trouble with categorizing us because we've done so many wide variety of different kinds of things. But I would say essentially that's what we are. I read somewhere that you said that you lived a conservative life, but when you got into music, the wildness came out. No, actually what I said was... Uh, I live a conservative life and I let my wildness come out in my music or my yeah. art. Yeah. That's it. I've led a wild life in lots of other areas, but for the last 30 years or so, I've lived a pretty conservative life as far as like conservative being, you know, I'm married to the same woman for 27 years and we're very eccentric people. It's not like Mr. Rogers house. It's more like, you know, the Adams family's house. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still get the same feeling from playing music as you did when you were doing hall shows way back in the day when you first started? Yeah, absolutely. We still do. You know, most of our shows are just in clubs. They're not arenas unless we happen to be touring with a big band, but that rarely ever happens. And um, as time goes on, that kind of stuff means less and less to me. I prefer to do my own thing anyway. I don't understand why bands want to be a part of big rock festivals. I mean, we would do it because we would need the money, but if I was massively rich, I would never do something like that. I would always only do my own shows. That's it. I don't want to be a part of some bogus festival. If I had million, if I'd sold millions of records and had tons and tons of money, why would you want to be part of some festival? It's like, now do your own thing. Now you have embraced this thing, which is strange to me. We're not in a position to turn that kind of stuff down, but if I was, I would turn it down. We've mostly been left to our own devices and to fend for ourselves. Fine with me. You know, there was a time in the world where uh, if you suggested to someone that they needed someone else to take care of them, they'd have been offended. You know, and I just think that people are no longer offended. <laughs> I like how you've been proactive with your mental health. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I work out with a trainer five days a week. I golf all the time when I'm home, which I think is really good for your mental health and for and it's about seven miles of walking i uh, do as much physical activity as i can my wife is the same way i feel like in order for me to progress i need to be doing something i need to be reading i need and i'm okay by myself i need to be doing something and i've been uh, working on a book that's good and i'm also really into photography so i'm using this time to edit together a big photography book too
and the book's going to be about about my life in music. Well, a much longer version of this interview, I guess. Yep, that's it. There's certain times in your life where you made one decision that changed everything. In movies, I'm a big movie fan. There's always a key scene in the movie that without that scene, the movie doesn't work. Like in The Shining, it's when the cook is telling the kid about The Shining. Without that, the movie doesn't work. Find those kinds of things in your life, I think are really important. And do you know what that is for you? There's a bunch of them, a bunch of things that led me to where I am right now. It's great to find those. Like, how did you decide that? Was it that big of a chance? How much did you have to change? Were you wrong? Were you right? I think that's some of the hardest things you'll ever do in your life with that conviction. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Screen Therapy. Screen Therapy is now airing on college and community radio stations. They include my hometown radio station, CGMP, out of Pell River, Radio Humber from Humber College in Toronto, Ontario, and Radio Waterloo, CKMS, from Waterloo, Ontario. If you like a certain radio station, hit them up and tell them about the podcast. You can connect with me at soundcloud.com slash screamtherapy, or you can email me directly at jasonschurz at telus.net. That's J-A-S-O-N-S-C-H-R-E-U-R-S at telus.net. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, take care and be well. Keep it down.